0: Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive, if it stays fair, home run. <laughs> One strike away, Sandy into his windup, here's the pitch, swagger on and missed a perfect game. <laughs> Deep left center, him on the run, yes, 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 yes we given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Left side, Swanson to first. Yes! 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 He wants it! Braves! Braves in baseball talk. Straight from the Diamond. Here's Grab McCauley.
1: And hello and welcome to another edition of From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you here on Sports Radio 92.9. The game live from the Kia studios on a wonderful Saturday afternoon. And it is, Corey, one of the best times of the year when it comes to sports. We've got college football back. We've got the NFL back. I know folks are really excited about that, but we here in Braves country and those of us who just do the whole baseball thing pretty much year-round are very excited about what the month of September means because it's pennant races, it's the stretch run, it's the prelude to October, which, of course, is a pretty great time of year as well. And I say all of that to tell you that the first place Atlanta Braves are sitting atop the National League East, and this has been quite the odyssey just to get there.
2: I feel like last year, you know, when you waited till August 4th to get to 500, you were just kind of, you know, now you're going to d- increase the degree of difficulty. Yeah. You go into the game settings and ratchet it all the way up to expert. <laughs> and you decide for the the deepest into any season in franchise history, you will overtake first place.
1: And think about all of the uh, great Atlanta Braves teams and that run through the 90s, and even some of the ones prior to this run of four consecutive division titles that have had different degrees of difficulties, different paths to the postseason, and you know, each one of those divisions, I, I would say those titles, was a beautiful and unique snowflake. One of them was the most beautiful in 1995. But now you've got an Atlanta Braves team that seems like they have really figured it out and put together a squad that's going to be doing this annually But this was a harder road to the top of the division because the New York Mets became a much better baseball team than the version that fell apart in 2021. We're going to talk a lot about this race. We're going to get you caught up on what is going on with the Mets right now. Of course, what the Braves are doing amidst an eight-game winning streak to take over first place in the National League East and all of the stories and players that have really contributed to what has been a very exciting season of Atlanta Braves baseball. Before we do all that, I want to remind you, as always, make sure you're following me on Twitter. I'm at Grant McCauley. Follow Corey at Corey J. McCartney. Follow the show at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end. And if you like From the Diamond or if you just join us for the first time, let me invite you. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcast, or find us on the Odyssey app. With all of that out of the way from Odyssey to an Odyssey, as I talked about, 139 games for the Braves to take over first place in the NL East. And this isn't just that, hey, the Mets have fallen on hard times and are dealing with the kind of a second half that the New York Yankees across town are dealing with. This, I think, Corey, has been more about the Braves' dominance and momentum since June the 1st than the Mets just slipping on a banana peel and allowing the Braves to walk right past them.
2: Yeah, without question. I mean, certainly, you know, you lose a a 10-and-a-half game edge in a division and you think, okay, clearly that team that was in first place fell to pieces, right? But all they did was play 600 ball, the Mets, and it just wasn't good enough. I mean, the Braves, you know, were just fantastic playing, you know, over 750 winning percentage, wasn't it, over the exact same span? Mm-hmm. I mean, just absolutely crazy. And, you know, I, I talked to you about this before, and this this is the stat that just blows me away on this. You're, you're talking about the deepest into a, a, a year in which the Braves have taken over first place for the first time. In history, they in 1916 and 1883 they did so on September 4th. So they are good for this once a millennium. So mm-hmm. don't count on this happening again to be this far back and and get first place this deep into a season. Shake the spirits of Robert Moranville. I mean, this is this is insane to think about. It's September 10th mm-hmm. and
1: it's the first time they wake up atop of this division. And we're talking about a 151 year sample size here. And by <laughs> the way, the Mets playing 600 baseball since June the first. Let me just go ahead and tell you that's a 97 win pace over the course of a. 162 games. This, again, is not a Mets team that simply forgot how to win or just opened the door and allowed the Atlanta Braves to just barge in and make themselves at home. They have been winning way more than they have been losing. But here in September, you know, Corey, we talked a lot about this as we got to the All-Star break, as we got to the trade deadline, as we turned the calendar to September not too long ago. Hey, the Mets have this schedule. It's the easiest strength of schedule in all of baseball for all 30 teams down the stretch. They're only going to play one winning team, and it's the Brewers, who don't look like a winning team, before they get to the Braves at the end of September. But they have already hit a couple of speed bumps. The Washington Nationals took two out of three from them. The Pittsburgh Pirates handed them a loss, though they did bounce back to win a doubleheader and take that series. And now, all of a sudden, here the Braves are again taking advantage of the Mets losing to the Marlins and going out to Seattle and opening up a pivotal three-game series against a a wild-card hopeful in the American League by outslugging them and picking up a big win. So a whole lot of things have converged here for the Braves. Now their schedule is still going to be tougher. They do have the Mariners. They do have the Giants. They've got seven against the Phillies. Then it'll kind of soften up some with a couple of series against the Washington Nationals leading up to playing the New York Mets. But this has not been that easy ride through September that the Mets had imagined at least not yet, and particularly because they're not just losing games, they're also losing players right now.
2: Yeah, and I th- I want to still think that this Met ser- Mets schedule is still going to matter, right? They still have two series against the Marlins. They have matchups against the Cubs, Pirates, and A's with the Brewers, as you mentioned, the only winning team before that September 30th series at Truist Park. Uh, meanwhile, the Braves in that lead-up are going to have 10 teams against teams in postseason position, obviously. Mm-hmm. They're dealing with the Mariners right now. They've got yep. the Phillies. They've got the Giants, who are above 500 at home. Um, but the mere fact that we're even talking about this being so close, I, I seem to remember somebody back in May 31st, June 1st, was saying that this whole thing was, was over
1: with, right? Yeah, like, you know, this is fodder for social media, but I'm not going to use our well, valuable airtime it's, it's still on insane. this station. It's still insane right.
2: to think that you know w- there was a point where it looked like it was over it, with, and now here we are talking about the tables being flipped after a a 10-and-a-half game lead.
1: Yes, it was, but, I mean, a lot of people can cut a lot of promos about stuff that's going on, and then things can change by the time you get to TV, and that has been, (laughs) I think, a theme that we've been watching across a number of different mediums and a couple of different sports and entertainment genres. But, as it were, whatever you might have thought coming into Memorial Day, it looked like the National League East was going to be. I can tell you, I mean, a a 10-and-a-half game lead, yeah, it looks unsurmountable, but when you've got 120, 115, whatever it was, games to play at that point – I just don't see how anybody, and certainly the New York Mets did not take their foot off the gas. As I mentioned, they have continued to play a very high level of baseball for the majority of this entire season. This, again, says more about what the Atlanta Braves are doing and the pace that they have been on since June the 1st than any other single thing, and there have been so many different players who have been contributing to this, and I feel like, you know, over the final 24 games that the Braves have, I believe the Mets have 23 games remaining, if I'm not mistaken... You know, we talk about this schedule, but Atlanta has done such a great job. And I think this is a credit to Brian Snicker and also the players mentality. And I heard Matt Olson say this in particular. We've got our blinders on. We are completely focused on what we're doing. Yes, we'll see that score. We'll hear about that score. But we are not spending a lot of our time thinking about, well, who are the Mets playing right now? Can that team possibly beat the Mets? You just can't worry about that right now.
2: I I don't know that I hundred percent buy that. I don't hundred percent buy that they, that these players don't know what happened that day with the other team. No, I'm or, not saying that though.
1: I, I'm just saying that the, you worry you're about your own, number one. Worry focus. about your own yeah, 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 yeah.
2: I, I get that. I mean, certainly you you have to compartmentalize things as a professional athlete. But yeah. I, I think it you know. You, I mean, it seems like as you get later in the season, you'll kind of start to hear, yeah, you know, maybe we paid a little bit more attention to that than we were letting on. But I, I don't think that they're allowing what the Mets are doing or not doing to influence how they do things. Yes. But I certainly think that, they are not oblivious no. to the fact of what's
1: happening. No, 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 you can't be. And I, I certainly wouldn't even paint a picture that would begin to tell you that, oh, I don't know what they're doing, <laughs> who are they playing. Nothing like that, because that would be a little bit more disconnected than for, even for my life, you know, how I would like it to be. But I just don't think that they allow that to, drive the, to steer the car for them or to, to get in and, and drive them anywhere, really. And they've done such a nice job of winning series and continuing to just beat the teams they're supposed to, by and large. This eight-game winning streak, which began – You know, at this uh, right at the end of August and turning the page into September couldn't have come at a better time because again, it was all about the strength of schedules for these two clubs in September, and it just hasn't played out that way. Now we are talking about a half-game lead in the National League East, so let me go ahead and be clear and say this on our station: not saying this thing is over. There's a lot that can happen in the next three and a half, four weeks, and the Braves are well aware of that, and hopefully they'll continue to play like that as they look to hold off the New York Mets and hold on to first place for quite a while. Now, I mentioned that there are a lot of players, and as you know, if you've watched the Braves this year who have been big contributors to this, and as they rolled into Seattle, I feel like there was just such an intriguing matchup for the Braves' top rookie, I believe, Michael Harris II, and that's no disrespect to Spencer Strider, but for the purposes of this matchup, you've got a Michael Harris in in one corner. You've got Julio Rodriguez of the Mariners in the other corner. This is such a fascinating, I I think, comparison between these two players, both 21 years of age, both with a very good chance of winning the Rookie of the Year award, and also center fielders signed to long-term deals. They run, they hit for power, they play center field at a very high rate. These are some very exciting players to see going at it as the Braves and Mariners, again, in Seattle trying to break their long postseason drought. This is kind of a fun playoff-style atmosphere right here in the first, second week of September.
2: Yeah, and these are the players, position players anyways, that are number one in both the American League and National League in Harris and Rodriguez. Spencer Strider does lead all rookies uh, in Fangraph War, so that is something to, to roll out there yeah. too. But I think it's important to note that these both these teams have relied on rookies more than anybody in baseball, you take, you know, the most rookie war in the national league that belongs to the Braves, the highest rookie war in the American league belongs to the Mariners. And you mentioned it, just the, the fact that these two teams have made not only, you know, showcasing youth, but, prioritizing and locking up youth for the long term. Mm-hmm. I mean, Harris obviously gets the eight-year, $72 million deal. Rodriguez gets this convoluted deal with guarantees of 12 years and 210 that could all the up to $469 yeah,
1: it, million. You know, if somebody dollars, wants to give yeah. me that convoluted deal, I'll sign it too.
2: Unbelievable. And then you mentioned the power and speed combination. Rodriguez, the fastest player in American League history to get to a 2020 season, taking out Mike Trout. Uh, he did it in 170 107 good, games, right? Trout 112. Yeah, I mean, unreal, right? And Harris, 16 home runs, 16 stolen bases. Rodriguez has been up since April 8th. Harris has obviously only been up since May 28th. If you were to take his total across the season, that'd be 28 homers, 28 steals. So you're talking about two guys with 30-30 potential. Mm -hmm. Uh, The defense for both of them, just insane. Uh, Rodriguez, top five among all center fielders and outs above average. Harris is in the top 11. And then there's the fun stability of what they bring too, right? The Braves haven't had that power in uh, defense and, and all that mix in center field really since Andrew Jones. The Mariners have not had it with stability since Mike Cameron. So it's been a long time for both these teams uh, and what these two guys bring to the table.
1: Yeah, I know you bring up Mike Cameron, and Mike Cameron came over to the Mariners in a trade for a very notable center fielder who's drawing a lot of comparisons, and uh, Julio Rodriguez is, and that, of course, is the King Griffey Jr. for the overall style of player that yep. he is and at this age. It's a crazy comparison to to throw anybody in the same a sentence or same breath with King Griffey Jr., just for what he was able to do, particularly in Seattle. But that should just tell you how excited they are about Julio Rodriguez, and for good reason. And he will continue, I think, to show that over the next, what, decade-plus that he could be in a Mariners uniform. The excitement, of course, for Atlanta fans has been what Michael Harris has brought to the table, and you talked about, you know, yes, there are some stats in which Julio Rodriguez has the edge, home runs, stolen bases, runs batted in, so on and so forth. He's played 30 more games than has Michael Harris, and I believe Harris came into the weekend series with a slight edge, and Fangrass wins above replacement over Rodriguez, which is a pretty crazy thing to think about, but also exciting. These are two of the most exciting young players in all of baseball, and they are matching up as the Braves and Mariners continue their weekend series. But we have so much more we're going to be talking about here on this edition of From the Diamond. Of course, it's not just one rookie who's been showing out lately for the Braves. It's a handful of rookies. Spencer Strider has been on a tear again. Vaughn Grissom looks like he's found the swing and the Braves are continuing to utilize those young guys while attempting to get healthy here down the stretch. We'll update you on Ozzie Albies who's been out on a rehab assignment. Mike Soroka, of course, continues to make minor league starts in hopes of rejoining the Braves rotation at some point this year. Those would be a big boost to a Braves club that seems to be playing its best baseball at the absolute best time of the season. We got a lot to get to here on this edition of From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney, don't go anywhere. We continue on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
0: Now, back to more from the Diamond, Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
1: And welcome back in from the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game from the Kia studio. So if you're having a great Saturday and the Braves are having themselves a great weekend, at least they got started off in a great fashion up in Seattle as they picked up a 6-4 win over the upstart Mariners who have a wild card spot right now in the American League. A very fun matchup as the Braves continue their eight-game road trip. It will have, of course, this three games in Seattle, then shift over to three more games in San Francisco before the Braves come home. Corey, we've had this road trip, I think, circled for quite a while uh, on the calendar. Of course, every game and every series we're looking at now has has ratcheted up the amount of importance as we come down the stretch here. But I think that everybody has to kind of look back on road trips past when it goes out west for the Braves and thought, What's going to go wrong on this trip? Because there have been some some trips that they've gone out to San Diego or San Francisco or both of those places and just fallen flat on their face. Uh, but the Braves went out. They beat an Oakland team they should beat up on. They're having a great matchup, I think, an intriguing weekend series with the Seattle Mariners. First time they played up at Safeco slash T-Mobile Park in what, eight years, I yeah, believe? 2014. I mean, it's, it's been a hot minute since they've done that, so I, I think that's kind of fun, but then, of course, you are going to have to deal with the San Francisco Giants, who have fallen on hard times in the second half. Our old buddy Jock Peterson swinging a pretty hot bat, but other than that, it has been a, a bit rough for San Francisco. For the Braves, though, it'll be keep it going, keep that momentum rolling, and get on home for a six-game homestand that will remain after that. Then I was looking at the overall standings in Major League Baseball, and of course, we'll take a, a much deeper dive on this later in the show, but There are only two teams in MLB that have a better record than the Atlanta Braves as we sit here on Saturday uh, going through this show, and that is the Los Angeles Dodgers, who have a magic number of six to clinch the National League West right now, and the Houston Astros. And those sound like very familiar teams for the Atlanta Braves who have uh, faced them recently in October and could be facing them again.
2: I mean, what do you say about how good this Braves team has been, you know, since they flipped the script? And think about what would have happened had they not started so slow, right? I mean, it's certainly, you know, the fact that it took them this long to get over that 10 and a half game deficit. What is that deficit? Was it ever even close to that if they had just gotten off the, you know, out of the gate as fantastic as they've played of late? I um, mean, you know, we could be talking about the potential of a hundred-win team had they gotten uh, you know to that point uh, early in the season. But you know, plus one sixty-two uh, run differential. You know, that's second only to the Dodgers in the National League, and they have just played some fantastic baseball. And they've done it away. They've done it home, and mm-hmm. now they're doing it out west in a place as we mentioned they haven't played in a long time, which I think is you know kind of an interesting factor there. But a team that's obviously on its way to the postseason as well in the Mariners, and a, a nice test at this point. This
1: here's the thing, and not to pick nits, but we are talking about a hundred-win team if the Braves want to win the National League East. I think we're talking about 101 team for the Braves and 101 yeah. team for the Mets just based on the pace these two clubs are at right now because the Braves had 24 games left there at what, 87 wins? They're both eighty-six. Technically, because thirteen 87 wins, and eleven. Yeah. You're getting to a. The Braves have uh, might the have potential.
2: been one ten. I mean, it might have been one. Team. We might be talking about challenging that Mariners team from 01.
1: Or uh, the Dodgers that were on hundred and eleven win pace as they close in on hundred wins here, and and it's just absolutely crazy in the second week of September to see a club that's put it together uh, the way they have. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We'll talk about the National League West a little bit later, and of course, all of Major League Baseball when we take our look around the big leagues. But we talked a bit about Michael Harris and the impact that he has had on this club and the importance that uh, you know that he has. Um, just really come in the role that he has come in and taken to help the Braves you know, spark that incredible run that they got on beginning at the start of June. Coinciding with that, Spencer Strider was put into the Braves starting rotation, and we talked about Spencer and that 16-strikeout performance last time out, but I want to key in on his last start in Oakland because he had, what, a 36-37 pitch first inning. He walked three batters. He gave up a couple of runs. It looked like it was going to be a complete mess, and you just kind of had to wonder, wow, how quickly things can reverse, but was able to and find a way to get through six innings, strike out nine batters, allow only the two runs in the first, and continue to strengthen not only his rookie of the year claim, But I believe the very, very logical argument that you've got to find a way to get this guy as many starts in the postseason as you possibly can.
2: And it's crazy that we're talking about a guy that, you know, when he moved in the rotation, you thought, okay, could this be the answer on the back end there about the potential of him, you know, maybe moving out Kyle Wright, maybe moving out Charlie Morton in terms of when you start piecing together that postseason rotation. But 34 pitches over that first frame his last time out against the A's, could not find the strike zone, walks three, Gives up a double and allowing two runs. That obviously off uh, the strikeout game against the Rockies. He just seemed off. Then he makes the adjustments, rebounds, and retires 16 of the last 17 he faces. Nine strikeouts. Winds up with a .77 average against the fastball. That accounted for eight of his strikeouts, a 45% whiff rate. And he could not find the strike zone early on. Uh you know i think you looked at this matchup and thought he's absolutely just going to overpower these guys sure. it, it didn't happen early but whatever rick cranish walked when he went out there to talk to him in the first inning i mean it clicked and he was just looked so mm-hmm. locked in and was just so impressive i think that you could find ways to to Quantify this as more impressive than the last time because it looked like it might go off the rails and it didn't.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree and it's not that there is anything that you can take away from a record-setting strikeout performance the likes of which he had against Colorado. 16 strikeouts in 8 innings looking as dominant as any pitcher who's ever put on a Braves uniform in terms of strikeouts and that's something Spencer Strider, that's been his brand pretty much since he put on a Braves uniform at least since the start of 2022 whether he was in the bullpen racking him up and continuing this pace this is a kid that's closing in on 200 strikeouts he's going to get there in fewer than 150 innings we talked about how rare that is in baseball history only one pitcher has finished a year with 200 plus strikeouts and fewer than 150 innings that was Chris Sale it just happened three years ago so I was thinking about this and I know you wrote an article for Battery Power this week where you touched on the case for you know different guys in the Braves rotation particularly in the three-game series format and I think that's kind where everybody has been wondering, how do you line up these three guys? But I started to think about, if we're talking about Spencer Strider having the strikeout potential of a Chris Sale, could you imagine a healthy Chris Sale being taken out of anybody's playoff rotation? Because I can't.
2: No, but I think that's... But it just—I don't know that the age needs to be a factor in this, or resume needs to be a factor in this. Sure. Um But certainly, Kyle has not been fantastic. Of curveball had been such a weapon for him, but he really struggled with that against the A's. Um, he's thrown it for more—you know—higher than any point in his career. They hit 400 on that pitch. Then you got Charlie—you know—Charlie Morton, who's now given up 24 home runs yeah. on the season. So everybody kind of has these warts on their resume, and then you get to Kyle, to Spencer Strider, and really the only thing that you can say is. Well, he's a rookie. Right. You know that's and, it. I mean that's really I mean I, I will say there there is the there is the frame of mind that if you can roll a guy out potentially multiple times in a game in a series, how much more of a weapon is he than using him once in a starting role that let 'cause so let's say that A's start happens in the postseason. Does he even get a chance to go out there and, and rectify things?
1: Here's what I think would happen in that scenario, because we do have to look at all of it as possibilities on the board. Were he to go out there and get run in the first inning on 30 pitches, I think at that point he would be available in the bullpen should you need him. But I just can't fathom you know, going into the 2019 NLDS, somehow Mike Soroka is your best pitcher. You throw him one time, one start. I know you went and got Dallas Keuchel for the resume Charlie Morton has more of a resume in the postseason than Dallas Keuchel had, most certainly. But all of these pieces are tied together. It's not just what Spencer Strider has done. It's, you know, what has Kyle Wright done this year? Mm-hmm. And clearly, and we'll talk about him a little bit more in a moment, he's had an incredible breakout season. And I, to take nothing away, because of one bad start against the A's, everybody's going to have a clunker. No, you don't want to see him in the postseason, but just because he had a bad start against the A's doesn't mean that all of a sudden he's off the off the list, and now you got to put somebody else on the list. But with Charlie Morton, I guess more so than anybody, I've been more concerned with the home runs. He comes out, and he has almost inside of starts, you know, he shows these pockets of, okay, there's the strikeout guy right there. There's that curveball. He is dominating this lineup. He's carving them up. Then there's a walk or a hit batsman and a home run, and things just start to go sideways on him at a higher rate than it has as far as a long ball is concerned at any point in his career. 2010, he was with the Pittsburgh Pirates. He was in and out of their rotation. I believe he got demoted to the minor leagues at one point. That's the only season in Charlie Morton's career that he has allowed home runs at a higher rate per nine innings than he has allowed him here in 2022. And the 24 home runs, as he just touched on, that is the most that he's allowed in a single season. Last year, he allowed multiple home runs in one start. It's happened seven times now to him this year. He's allowed him with two strikes, nine of the 24 with two strikes, Seven of them on the first pitch. So I'm looking at different counts, different, you know, basically every just different stat that you look at just points to the fact that the home run is really hurting Charlie Morton here in 2022, and that's a thing that you can't really afford the postseason either.
2: Yeah, I mean, the hard hit rate, I mean, forgive me, but it's been hard to ignore. 40.3% of his balls are coming at 95 mile an hour or higher, which is the highest of his career, it was at 32.5% hard hit rate a year ago, which was, that was in the top 10% of all baseball. The average exit velocity at 88.9, a tip up, tip up from a year ago. Yeah. Um, he's had a higher fly ball rate, 27.6%. The only time he's ever done that was in, higher was in the 2020 season, which of course he just say nine starts. But yeah. I mean, the pitches in the fastball family have been his biggest issue. 12 home runs against the four-seamer, four off the cutter. That's one fewer homer on the four-seamer than he gave up the previous three seasons combined. Wow. So as great as the curveball has been, the other stuff uh, has been the, the, has been hittable and it's been hittable at an extremely hard rate.
1: Yeah, and that's something that again, as you put all this out, and you have to put them all on the table. You know where Max Fried is; he's your number one in your rotation. That's the guy that sets the tone for everything. But when you look at this three-game format, if you end up in the wild card, I just feel like Spencer Strider has to get a start there. Maybe it's not game two. Maybe it, it is game two. If you want to, you know, figure out a way. If you happen to lose game one and need to stave off elimination, I just feel like you want somebody that has that gives you the best chance and right now it just feels like and I'm not a prisoner of the moment kind of guy. I'm not a recency bias kind of guy because I believe over 162 you learn who teams are, you learn who players are and it all kind of works itself out. That might sound cliché, but I've watched enough baseball in my life to know that You know, people calling division races over Memorial Day are a bad idea, so it's also probably a bad idea to set your postseason rotation in July and August when this whole conversation started coming up. But now that we're in September, coming down the stretch, the number one thing you want to see out of Spencer Strider, Charlie Morton, and Kyle Wright is a very obvious thing, consistency. Can they continue to give you the chance to win every fifth day? By and large, each one of those men has. Spencer Strider's domination, though, is an X factor that very few pitchers, I feel, in the big leagues has. Now, as we talked about the importance of the starting rotation and all of the things that go into maybe figuring out how it's going to look in the postseason, we also have to talk about the bullpen because that is always a focus for the Atlanta Braves, and it was one of their biggest strengths in 2021, and it has been, by and large, a very good group here in 2022. Are they perfect? No. Are they going to blow some games? Yes. But if you look at the numbers that the Braves bullpen puts up, they are top five in just about everything that matters, and really top three in just about anything that you could possibly ask out of this group. Kinley Jansen, though, has been a little bit shaky lately. He's bounced back his last two saves for one, two, three innings. A.J. Minter, I think, has looked fantastic. Rice Iglesias, I don't know if he could look any better after coming over in that trade. And the other pieces seem to be falling in place leading up to those guys, but this big three right here I feel like can do the kind of work that the night shift did for the Braves in 2021.
2: It has a chance to be extremely dominant. I thought Jansen uh his last couple times out was a really positive. Certainly, you know, you blow two saves and four appearances and have a 15.0 ERA getting out of there without blowing a save is a positive, but he threw 10 of his cutters against the Mariners and they were hitless against the pitch. Uh, before that, the A's had generated a 75% whiff rate, and you look at those those three uh, five of his six previous appearances before that, yep. it was at 30% or lower. 18 of his last 27 pitches have been strikes after walking 11 guys in his previous 14 games. So I think that's all you know a major positive for a guy that they need to be in that position. But I'm still of the mind. We talked about this before. I would love to see Rossiel Iglesias, who has a .57 ERA. In 17 games, he has eight holds since being acquired from the, the Angels. I'd still like to see some, maybe some mix and match and mm-hmm. maybe allow some other guys. Because what happens if they get into that same situation you know, later and you've got to kind of revamp the pieces there? I'd, I'd like to see guys get some reps uh, and not always feel like, okay, we are tied or we have a lead. It's Kenley Jansen time.
1: Yeah, I think that it's going to be Kenley Jansen time unless he's worked in back-to-back mm-hmm. games perhaps. And maybe that's where you start looking at it. But some of these nights, It seems like the the Braves, I mean, they have bigger leads than our save opportunities. Sometimes, occasionally, Kinley Jansen will throw in those, but more times than not, you use somebody else in those situations. But I I do agree, but I don't feel like Rice Iglesias is going to forget how to close no, games. No. He's pitching in high leverage right now. I think that matters. A.J. Mentor's is pitching in high leverage right now. I think it matters. Um, you know, some of the other pieces, I mean, I'd love to see Tyler Matzik kind of get back to form, but he's been down a couple of miles an hour on the fastball all year. Now, his slider is a great strikeout pitch, but it's just a little bit different than what we expected when he could reach back for 97-98 and then break off those ungodly sliders and make lineups look ridiculous the way that he did in the NLCS last year. We just haven't seen that guy yet this year. Jesse Chavez coming back over, Colin McHugh, Dylan Lee, who we'll talk a little bit more about later. He has been a net positive for the Braves. He's been struggling lately, but you're never going to get all seven or eight relievers pitching their best baseball all at the same time. It's kind of a work in progress, and it's a very long season. It's
2: what makes last year and what they were able to accomplish in the postseason so stunning to think that you could rely largely on four guys like that. And, you know, certainly there were some hiccups along the way but rely on that group of guys and just know that they were going to be uh, you know locked down by and large uh, certainly, you know, Mentor's been fantastic. Colin McHugh, I think, has been one of the real unsung heroes of this uh, entire team. A two seven three ERA, a one two war. You know, he's striking out nine point seven per nine. I, th- I just think he's been underrated. Those fifty nine in the third inning that they've gotten out of him. You know, he's really limited the whole run- home runs. Has the you know the lowest home run rate uh, among anybody who not named Spencer Strider that's been in the bullpen <laughs> this season. So I think he it's it's not enough has been said about what Colin yeah. McHugh's been able to do. Well,
1: then we'll have to say more about him that's here right. on from the diamond as we continue. But yeah, it's an overall really nice. mix in the bullpen if Kenley Jansen's got his stuff figured out you feel pretty good about the trajectory of it we didn't even mention former all-star closer Kirby Yates who's also in this mix so there are a lot of good arms that the Braves are running out there we'll continue our discussion on this week in Braves baseball and of course with an eye on what's ahead for Atlanta as we continue on from the diamond Grant McCauley Corey McCartney with you on Sports Radio 92.9 the game
0: place for all things MLB and our Braves. This is From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9, the game.
1: And welcome back. From the Diamond with Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney. Live from the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9, the game. We come to you, of course, from Midtown, where it's a little bit gloomy here, but I think that there's nothing gloomy about the way that the Braves have been playing baseball here since June the 1st, and particularly in September. They're on their longest winning streak, I believe, since the 14-gamer, as they have now won eight consecutive games and are looking to make it nine in a row if they can continue their winning ways against the Seattle Mariners later on tonight. However, as we look at all of the things that are going on in the National League East, I I can look at it two ways. The Braves have worked long and hard to get to first place, but I think everybody should be well aware that this race for the division is not over yet. Getting to first place is one thing, Corey. Staying there is quite another
2: Absolutely. And I mean, I go back to this and we'll continue to go back to this is what the Mets have ahead of them in terms of what the Braves have ahead of them. Certainly the Mets have an easy schedule, but... You know, I've told you before, they can serve cup but that does not mean that you're going to feast on them. And the yeah. Mets at this point just are not feasting on these cupcakes. They just continue to lose games that, you know, on paper, they should not be losing. They're now without Max Scherzer, who's on the IL with a, a you know, a side issue, which he says is not related to the left oblique issue that cost him seven weeks. Starling Marte is dealing with a broken middle finger. So um, it, it looked like they were going to have all the pieces back and ready to roll, and now all of a sudden, here's the Mets dealing with injuries yet again.
1: Yeah, and no team is immune to them, and they can come. At the most inopportune times. Not that there's ever a good time for anybody to get injured, but in particular, the magnifying glass, the scrutiny that you're under this time of year, it, it can't come at much of a worse time. Now, as far as injuries are concerned, the Braves are hoping to have a couple of guys back in the fold. And in particular, we're talking about second baseman Ozzy Albies, who continues to rehab with Triple A Gwinnett. He is now playing second base, Corey. He's been out there on consecutive days. Not a lot as far as the hits are concerned yet for Ozzy. but I think as much as anything, this isn't about going down and torching AAA pitching for a week and a half or two weeks. This is about making sure that foot is good to go, making sure that he's ready to come back and jump in and play second base on a regular basis again. And hopefully, offensively speaking, that kind of thing will take care of itself.
2: Yeah, and that's what Brian Snicker told us, right? It wasn't they weren't worried about him being in shape. He had done the work throughout the rehab process. He was at Truist Park a lot. Uh, it was getting him back into everyday game shape. Yes, um, three for 18 so far, zero extra base hits uh, in these rehab starts at Triple A Gwinnett. He's made two starts at second base so far. The results, as we mentioned, they're, they're insignificant. It's just him being in the correct shape to feel like you can move him in there. Um, there's just been some weirdness, right? He missed three games with with rain and rest. Um, I think you know you, you have to consider the fact that he could return during that six game homestand. They've got the yep. Phillies, they got the nationals. If you're going to bring Ozzy back, uh, that feels like the right time on that schedule to get him back into the fold.
1: Yeah, it definitely does. And I, I feel like if you are able to get him, more, if he had more bats, not having lost those couple of days, particularly to rain, he was, there's going to be rest. It was designed in yep. this. You would have had him back out at second base a little bit sooner. That's just happened over the last 48 or so hours. So, it's going to be critical to see what Ozzie Albies is able to you know, show the club in terms of his overall health. But once they deem that he is in baseball shape and ready to go, Ozzie Albies is going to be back out there, and he's going to be your second baseman, which brings us to one of our favorite discussions that we've been having every week for a while, pretty much since the guy debuted. What do you do when Ozzie Albies comes back with Vaughn Grissom? Because this guy has been yet another one of the rookie standouts for the Braves, yet another one of the guys that you can look at as far as those rookies are concerned that stepped in at a critical time and provided a spark. You had Michael Harris and Spencer Strider. I'm going to say that they kind of lit it together there at the end of May, early June because Spencer moving to the rotation, the uh, the promotion of Michael Harris, that happened. And then the Braves went on a nice winning streak and have been playing the great baseball they have once you got into August, you were already without Ozzy In Orlando, Arcea gets hurt, and you wondered, who in the world's going to play second base every day for the Braves? And here from AA Mississippi comes Vaughn Grissom hitting homers over the Green Monster, scoring runs aplenty, and playing a really solid position defensively that he had not played much in his career. But now, Corey, the question is going to become, can he play another position? And that position in particular is probably going to be the outfield. So let's get into that in a second. I
2: want to talk about first how the turnaround that we've seen out of him because he got out of the gate so hot, right? hits 420, uh, 14 games in. Then it looks like he might be in for a downturn. He hits two for 25, a .83 average uh, over his next six games. Now all of a sudden he's hit 400 again with two doubles, two homers, and six RBIs in this last stretch. Uh, he's back to 330 in the season. No rookie, if you dial it back to 100 plate appearances, has a higher weight of run a plus at 150, 153 right now. And the crazy thing about him is that the way that he's been able to go opposite field, he's gone opposite field at least 50% of the time in each game during this turnaround, including each of the last four. He did not do that consistency over uh, at the beginning. One no. uh, Over his first 17 games, he did it four times. Now we're seeing it consistently out of him, which is one of the reasons why you've got to find a way to keep this guy in. We know he's been taking reps in the outfield I mean he's already played out of position once it's not out of the realm of reason to think somebody so athletic can do it again but there are so many other dominoes that you figure out okay what happens to this guy what happens to this guy what happens to this guy if you're going to use him ideally in left
1: field yeah and we love dominoes here we're going to play a little bit of that in just a moment but kind of circling in on Vaughn Grissom's turnaround here lately I mean there was a conversation between another 21 year old you know locker right beside him you know talking about Well, if you hit the ball the other way at this time or that time, then you would have had a double. You would have gotten on base. You would have done this. And I think that that kind of started to sink in. And then you start thinking about these two 21-year-old kids have the really really the wherewithal and the baseball IQ to not only notice these things, but also to share these things with a teammate, continue talking about the game, and have the opportunity to make each other better by default and and through this process. And I don't want to take anything away from the fact that Von Grissom revealed Austin Riley gave him a bat. And all of a sudden, (laughs) he got six hits in yeah. Oakland, so I'm just saying maybe if Austin Riley would like to give everyone a bat, that this kind of thing could be contagious and the entire club could just go on a tear. But whatever the reason yeah. is, and I think it's more about the hard work and the approach than anything else for Vaughn Grissom, and he's shown a great approach at the plate working at bats, but this opposite field thing, I think, to your point and to the numbers and, and, the, and the metrics and everything else that you know just bears it out, he changed something about what he was doing, and he has cashed in with more base hits, more times on base, and is making more of a an impact after just kind of wondering, is he going to be able to adjust to how the league has adjusted to him? The answer to that, at least thus far, has been yes. Now, we talked about this outfield dilemma that the Braves find themselves in. Part of this is Ronald Acuna Jr. right now is your everyday designated hitter. I don't see that changing very often down the stretch. I think the Braves are going to use this with the, you know, the occasional start in right field for Ronald in order to make sure that he's absolutely healthy and ready to go come the playoff time, as healthy as he can be. He's going to have good days and bad days with that knee. We've covered that, and if you want to go back in the archives and listen to it, you can certainly do that. You can find From the Diamond wherever you get your podcast. However, you've got Eddie Rosario, who we haven't seen a lot of dealing with a hamstring injury. You've got Marcelo Zuna forced into action, basically, in left field. He has been hitting fairly well. He's been involved in some of the Braves you know, winning lately with, of course, the Marlins and Athletics Series. So make of that what you will. If he's going to be on the active roster, he might as well contribute, and he's done that. But then you've got to think about, you know, uh, those two guys plus Eddie Rosario, or, or, excuse me, plus Robbie Grossman. And then if you do play Ronald Acuna Jr. in right field, but if you don't, he's blocking the DH spot. How do you get Vaughn Grissom at bats? They're either going to have to, I think, come in left field, maybe right field, or they're going to have to come at the DH spot. But if you're bringing Ozzy Albies back to play at second base, you can't really DH Ozzy even if you really want to unless you play Ronald in the field. And so there are, as you mentioned, a whole lot of dominoes here, a whole train of them that we've got to make some sense of. And that more importantly than us making sense of it, <laughs> Brian Snicker and Alex Anthopoulos are going to have to make sense of how to get all the right pieces on the board every night.
2: Yeah, and if you want to use William Contreras in the DH role in those nights when he's not catching, which That's I think another. makes it—I mean, there's just so many pieces. and I, I, Obviously, the—, the Big crux of the issue is that you're not going to be able to use Ronald Acuna Jr. in the outfield on an everyday basis. As you mentioned, maybe you can make it happen occasionally, but when you don't, you've already created a log jam there. I think it's – I don't know that it's – its we can, with 100% certainty, say that when Ozzy always comes back, he's going to be ready to play each and every day. So maybe he's going to have to, you know, potentially have to get some uh, spots in DH too, but he's not going to be able to be that. You're not going to be able to use – you're not – him on out the outfield. There's just so many limited pieces here. And the fact that, you know, you got to find a, a way, you know, to keep so many at bats for guys, as we mentioned with Contreras, Robbie Grossman, Eddie Rosario, when he's available, Marcelo Zuna, who, again, as you said, he's, if he's on this roster, you've got to find a way to utilize him. Um, there's just so much at play here. It's not in an ideal world. You say, Von Grissom, go play left field. Ozzy Albies, you go play second base. And everybody mm-hmm. just keeps
1: doing what they're doing. Right, But the Acuna thing is just what makes this such a tricky situation. It really does. But you, uh, the Braves are a better team with Ronald Acuna Jr. in the lineup. And that's your obvious headline of the day. Even though he has not played at the superstar level at which he was prior to the ACL injury, he still makes more of an impact, I feel like, on how the lineup flows. And, of course, he has the opportunity to impact the game a number of different ways and a number of different times. Even if he's not stealing a whole bunch of bases, though he did swipe one last night, this is still a guy that I think can go first to third. He can still score. you know, He can still ramp it up. It's the slowing down that's been the big problem for Ronald. Again, we've talked about that a lot, but having him out there in the lineup should tell you he's healthy enough to play, and there is that line that we always talk about between being hurt and being injured. And I think right now, Ronald's just hurting a little bit some days, and it's going to result in some good days and bad days for him. But overall... You know, the Braves have the problem, I think Brian Snicker said, that you love to have is too many good players. And they're going to try to figure out what to do Whether their too many good players down the stretch as they try to chase down, and not just chase down, they've done that, but also try to hold the Mets at bay and get this National League East crown wrapped up. Now, the Braves also have Mike Soroka working his way back. He's through five minor league starts now, no longer on a rehab assignment. He has been optioned to triple A Gwinnett, so the Braves can call him up when they need to uh, here in the next, I believe, week. Uh, Still hasn't reached the pitch count. I think that they want to see him to get him into the major league mix. But again, another 75-plus pitch outing in the second game of a doubleheader yesterday. From what I gathered, there was just kind of some bad luck for him. Didn't pitch altogether that poorly, but only four innings for him again. I'd love to see Mike Soroka come in and make an impact on the Braves rotation or pitch some meaningful innings, I guess is the best way I can put it, uh, here in September. And the Braves have kind of needed that at times to have somebody on standby. It's been Bryce Elder, who's been terrific, stepping in a couple of times in the rotation. Jake Odorizzi is slated to go in Sunday's finale against the Seattle Mariners after having some arm fatigue himself. Uh, But the Braves, I think one of the big things that they've had working for them this year has been that starting pitching depth Mike Soroka, though, was a very fascinating name to throw into that mix.
2: Without question. So he threw 76 pitches last time out, so he's gone 45-45, 58-61, 45, and now 76 pitches in those rehab starts. You know, he told me before, that uh, one, one before this, against uh, for Gwinnett, that he wanted to try to get to 90. Yeah, um, He's not gotten to that point uh, to this uh, at this stage. So he could be in line to make another start, you know, and, and maybe you think about that September 19th to the 21st series against the Nationals. If you can get him to 90 this next time, I mean, I think the NL second... Worst offense would be a good place to start if you're going to get him out <laughs> right. there and get him an opportunity to to get back on the the a major league mound. But it is interesting. I mean, because you've got Bryce Elder, you know, who this last couple outings, 13 innings with one run allowed, 16 strikeouts to five walks. Jacob Arizzi, ever since that rain delay against the Mar- the Mets, has been much better. Yep. Uh, he had a five nine three ERA in his first three starts since then. He's allowed three earned runs over 11 and two thirds. Um, so those two have looked really good. But it, it's just the potential. Of what you can have with the former all-star and Soroka, you know, over you know a rookie and elder who's shown you some good moments, but's had some walk issues early on. Oderizzi, who I think has you know real like hit or miss capabilities. Um, just the the potential of Mike Soroka is just so fascinating that I, you know if I'm picking, if I'm ranking these guys one, two, three, give me Soroka, you know first off the board there to see if you can have him come in uh, and be that swing guy for you late in the season.
1: Yeah, important to point out, Mike Soroka's stuff has been right where it needs to be, sitting in the low 90s. He's been able to operate with all of his pitches thus far, though I, you know, when I, in my talks with Mike, it's all about just refining things, getting a little mm-hmm. bit sharper, You know, figuring out better ways to execute. I think that was the number one thing he found in AAA. Even though he went down and had a dominant return to the mound against Rome with the eight strikeouts and four innings, um, you still have to kind of ratchet things up a bit when you face more experienced hitters. And AAA guys have been a little bit more of a challenge for him. Now, one of his starts, not this past one, but the one prior, was shortened due to range. Yeah. That's one of the big reasons why his pitch count didn't get to jump up there. Uh, this last one, I think he just kind of worked in and out of some trouble late and was done at 76 pitches. But either way, I think the biggest thing you take away from all of it is he's been healthy and he'd love the opportunity to see what Mike Soroka could offer. But the Braves have a starting rotation right now that has four very capable pitchers that are already locked in place and that fit spot that has multiple different levels of depth. I mean, and Alex Anthopoulos is putting together that that depth chart at the start of the year. I don't think you can ask for much of a better one than the Braves have right now, and that's not including Mike Soroka getting back in there. Or maybe you do include it at this point because we were waiting on the rehab assignment for so long, and now it seems like he is knocking on the door. The Braves have done some outstanding things on this road trip already. They continue their winning ways with an eight-game winning streak that has pushed them to the top of the National League East. We've got a lot to talk about here as we continue on From the Diamond. And, of course, we're going to take an expanded look at everything that's happening around the big leagues. And we'll start by looking at the National League here. And we're also going to talk about the rules changes that Major League Baseball has thrown out there. A lot of things to get to. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you on From the Diamond right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
0: More From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game.
1: And welcome into Hour 2 of From the Diamond, right here on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. From the Kia studios, it's Grant McCauley, it's Corey McCartney, as we continue on and shift our focus a little bit anyway to what else is happening around the big leagues. We're going to go through the National League and, of course, get you sized up on what's happening in the East Race between the Braves and the Mets, and then take a look at what's happening in the Central, the West, the Wild Card, all that good stuff. But we also have to think about What's happening in Major League Baseball in 2023? Because that has been a hot topic over the past 48 to 72 hours, let me tell you. Because they decided to vote on some rules changes, Corey. We talked about these earlier on in the year, that these were all things that Major League Baseball was thinking about doing. And now we are going to be seeing them integrated into the game beginning in 2023. The things I speak of, of course, are the pitch clock, which is 20 seconds with no one on base. 15 seconds, uh, excuse me, 15 seconds with no one on base, 20 seconds with a runner on, and that's going to be enforced for all big league pitchers for the first time. And we've seen a little bit of this in the minors. It's in the rule book. You're supposed to throw one every 12 seconds, but whoever reads that thing. (laughs) Uh, Then you're going to have larger bases, which is going to be, I think, a little bit of an intriguing change that is happening for reasons. I'll say that, and we'll get into more of it in a moment. The biggest thing, I think, the most divisive thing, perhaps, is the ban of the shift. It's going to change the way that infielders are able to set themselves up prior to a pitch, meaning that everyone has to stay on the infield dirt and the the fielders on the left and right side of the second base have to stay closer to their positions and not be able to move out into the outfield or do three or four guys on one side of the field and all these extreme shifts are going to be going away. So after all of that being said, uh, Corey, where do you land on some of these rules changes and are you surprised that maybe, especially with the shift, That they went so far so fast with changing and limiting something that many teams, if not all teams, have really been embracing and using to great results over the past decade.
2: Yeah, it's important to note that the four players who are involved in this panel all voted against the shift, uh, all voted against the pitch clock um the shift thing i mean you're basically just going to end up rewarding pull hitters right we tr- we started right. to take away pull extreme pull hitters now you're going to reward extreme pull hitters so i'm sure joey gallo is you know, holding a celebration at some point right now but th- th- when you add it when you think about the pitch clock and you think about the the limiting of uh, the pickoff moves they're just putting so much more i feel like onto the plate of the home plate umpire like is he now going to be uh, worried about whether the guy is with how long does it take him to get in the box when does he tow the rubber what's mm-hmm. that clock say it, i mean I almost wonder they they so they've had four umpires on the field is there are they going to need a fifth one or is this ultimately leading us down the road of an automated strike zone so that's one less thing that an umpire has to worry about and now the home plate guy's real main job is to make sure that the pitcher in the in the hitter are adhering to these rules that are set forth by these clocks
1: well i think we're going to end up with that automated strike zone we could spend the whole second hour of this show talking about the importance or the, the lack of a need for that, depending on how much of a baseball purist you are for it. But I do feel like there are ways. I mean, the game is constantly evolving. That's one thing. That, and I think in all sports, I mean, they started playing football with no helmets. They moved to leather helmets. They've moved on to a lot of other different things. That's just one example. But with baseball, it had always kind of been, quote, unquote, the Wild West defensively. Like, you can put a guy out there if you want to. But is it bad sportsmanship? Are you going to get burned because you just opened up a whole position where nobody's standing anymore? It took a long time for us to get, I think, to where we are. And I'm a little bit surprised. And I know I saw comments from Ian Happ of the Cubs just saying, what if we kind of, you know, move to some limitations rather than just an out-and-out ban? And I have seen videos that have been posted by different folks, including Mike Petriello of MLB.com, who does a lot of the advanced analytics and Statcast research and articles that, you, that you'll find out there. And he's a great follow on Twitter that showed a ground ball hit by Christian Yelich, a hard hit ground ball that should get into center field if you're thinking the shift has been banned. But the shortstop was still close enough to the second base bag, but on his side. So he was able to go and get that. So I guess I'm wondering, are they putting this in place with that little pie deal that they tried in the minor leagues to where you're really saying, not only do you have to be on your side of the second base bag, you got to get over there and stay over there far away from it, and you can only move once the pitch has been put in motion. But how many fielders are moving to a spot they think the ball might go when the pitch is thrown and still in the air before the batter actually puts it in play? It's just... There's a lot of stuff going on here,
2: and there's going to be a lot of uh, front offices are going to be really upset because they've put so much money into the advanced analytics and no like telling guys where to stand. You know, this guy's tendency to say this, this guy's tendency to say that, and you're obviously taking that away. But I always go back to the NASCAR comparison, right? So in NASCAR, they went to the car tomorrow, and these these. Uh, Crew Chiefs decided, if we just go right up against this limit, we can still have this and still have a little bit of a competitive edge. I think their teams are going to find some way to kind of work around what this says and still, you know, have things play to their favor, but maybe not toe over that line or get a little bit, you know, too much of the pie, if you will, if they end up using that uh, that piece that they used in the minor leagues there to to differentiate where a guy's supposed to be, I think there's going to be some pushing of the limits without question.
1: Yeah, then there always is. I mean, if if they weren't pushing the limits, they wouldn't be trying and doing everything that they possibly could to get that competitive edge, and I say that as above board as I possibly can. Other things have happened below board that we won't get into um the other two rules changes i don't want to spend a ton of time on the larger bases i, I kind of get what they're going for here but i will just have to see it to believe it and and start to get used to what it's going to look like because it's going to be aesthetically strange um and then secondarily that pitch clock that has been in use in the minor leagues for some time i think that it will have some effect on pace of play but i don't think it's going to net them the kind of time that they think it's going to. But Maybe this is just an attempt to try something out that none of these things are set in stone. We could be revisiting the shift. We could be revisiting this pitch clock. It doesn't mean just because they've now been passed as rules that they're going to stay in forever. Because, thank goodness, that ghost runner at second business, the magical Manfred man, is supposed to go away in 2023. And I personally might throw a party, so I'll let all of you know what the arrangements will be.
2: So this new pickoff move is really interesting, though, because they're instead of you now pickoffs, you have what's considered versions of disengagement, right? Where So it consists of any time a pitcher makes a pickoff attempt, fakes a pickoff, or steps off the rubber, uh, as well as when the defense requests time, they ha- they're have they allowed two disengagements per plate appearance without penalty. But after a third step off, the pitcher will be charged with a bulk unless at least one offensive player advances the base. So you're putting these, p- p- these base runners in a position where you basically are just going to deke the pitcher mm-hmm. into a situation where... You're almost getting a free pass to wind up on second base.
1: I don't understand the necessity for this one. Somebody will have to come in that spent more time on it and and sell me their yarn. Things I didn't ask for, but again, baseball has given us a few of those over the years. As we look at what's going on in the National League at large, let's start here in the East because I just I don't expect the Mets to go away, Corey. They have just lost Max Scherzer though to the IL as we talked about earlier. Starling Marte is dealing with a fractured finger. He's banged up. They're going to have to make a decision about him, I would imagine. If they're not going to have his services, then he might end up on the IL as well. It's no time of year for that. There's never a good time of year for that. But since June the 1st, the Braves are 40 games over 500. They're 64 and 24 after their win in Seattle on Friday. The Mets are 53 and 35. I mean, that's 18 games over 500. That's not bad. There's an 11-game swing in the standings, though, as the Braves went from 10 and a half games back to a half game in front of the Mets. But the onus I still feel like for the Braves, they can't give up the mentality that they've had, that they have been chasing the Mets. Just because they've caught them here this week with a tie and now going ahead a half a game, the work, as I've said, week after week after week is still out in front of them over this final 24 games.
2: And as we've talked about for the better part of a month, just keep it manageable until you get to that September 30th series at Truist Park, the last time you see the Mets this season. Uh, I mean, the, the Mets are in a really weird situation. Max Scherzer, again, on the I.O. with this this side issue, 15 days. He's, he's eligible to come back on September 19th. He says it's days, not weeks. Remember, he missed seven weeks uh, in the first half with a left oblique strain, which right. he, again, calls unrelated to this issue. Uh, Marte is a pain management issue right now. So they have Tyler Naquin assuming his uh, role at this point. But they don't have any intention of putting him on the injured list. So I think their thought is within the next week, they're going to have Max Scherzer back in that rotation and Marte out uh, sooner than later. I mean, he's he's hit 292, you know, mm-hmm. 347, 468 prior to that injury. He's been one of their most consistent pieces offensively. We know what Scherzer means to this team. I mean, you, you're obviously you're in a situation with these easy games where you can't afford to lose. Now you really can't afford to lose when the team's overtaking you in the division. Um, I, again, I, I think everything's going to come down to that September 30th series. At least it's trending that direction and uh, we'll see how healthy the Mets are when that happens.
1: So as of now, all we know is that they've ruled out amputating Starling Marte's finger, but they are going to attempt to utilize him down the stretch, and I would imagine broken finger, that is certainly going to be a pain management deal day-to-day. So the Braves have overtaken the Mets in the National League East, and in the Central, the Cardinals have continued to distance themselves from the Brewers, who have been in a tailspin for a while now. The lead has gotten up to eight games in the Central between St. Louis and second-place Milwaukee, heading into Saturday The Brewers were up by four games on July the 30th. That's a 12-game swing in the standings and even less time than the 11-game swing we just talked about that took place in the National League East.
2: So on August 1st, the Brewers had a 90% chance per fangraphs of making the postseason. They are now at 18.5%. In the last two weeks, it's gone from 38% to 18.5%. Again, 90% on August 1st. I I feel like the next week's everything, right? They have a two-game series against the Cardinals, then three against the Yankees, three against the Mets. Uh, They lost Friday to the Reds. Um, that that pitching we've we've mentioned before had been an issue, but Corbin Burns was that guy that you felt like, okay, you rely on him. He did go out his last time out and struck out 14, but before that, he had a 5-2-6 ERA since August 1st. This team's on shaky ground. Eric Lauer left to start with an elbow soreness. Freddie Peralta's in the IL. Um, Aaron Ashby's on the IL. I, it just feels like Time and mathematics are up against the Brewers trying to make this thing happen.
1: Yeah, and they really shook things up around the trade deadline when they made their decision to trade away Josh Hader, and I can't help but get away from the fact that that may have sent a negative message into that clubhouse and just changed the dynamic that maybe you didn't want to mess with. Be that as it may, out in the West, the Dodgers have a magic number of six as they head into Saturday. They could be the first club in baseball to clinch a division. They're on pace for 111 wins, Corey. This is a club that just keeps on keeping on, and somehow, despite the fact that they have been... I feel like the standard bearer and the bar for the National League for quite some time, if not all of baseball, they find ways to get better annually, it feels like.
2: They do, but I, th- I think the big issue with them is what what what's the biggest commodity that you have in the postseason? It's pitching, right? right. And certainly... They have an offense that they could slug their way to a championship, but it just we just have not seen a team that's been able to do that no. uh, in years. So they have big questions when it comes to that postseason rotation after Julio Urias. Tony Gonsolin has been out over a week with a forearm strain. Tyler Anderson, Andrew Haney, those guys each kind of have – I mean, they have their issues. They have their concerns. They have two postseason appearances between them, and they're both on Anderson's resume. Clayton Kershaw did look fantastic last time out, recorded 18 swings and misses, nine on the slider, six on the curveball um, – but do they have enough starting pitching, as it currently stands, to make a real run? They got a loss to the Padres on Friday. The, the Padres have only won four of the fourteen against them. Now, I'm not going to say that the Padres are going to end up overtaking them. It's, no, it's not of happening. Not. No. but I, I just I don't know that there's enough starting pitching with the Dodgers to feel like. They are as big of a juggernaut in the postseason as they have been
1: throughout this regular season. I mean, ultimately, they need, what, three healthy starters in the postseason, you feel like? And they have two. Well, they've got Urias, and they've got Kershaw, and they did get Dustin May back. And I know that he missed an awful lot of time coming back from it, but... Not that he has put up the kind of numbers that Spencer Strider has this year, but he's a tantalizing arm to have in your cupboard if you are Dave Roberts. And if you're looking for any kind of answers, particularly in a year where you lose Walker Bueller to Tommy John and have had to overcome and they don't have Max Scherzer, who they did go out and get at the trade deadline last year, that kind of guy didn't walk in the door this time. So, yeah, you are counting on a guy like Tyler Anderson, perhaps, to be someone that's going to throw important games for you and perhaps he will because he has been a very solid addition for them and another one of those Dodgers success stories right where they go out and find a guy that's been banged up or just been an underperformer somewhere else they tweak a few things they roll them out there with a new coat of paint and it's like they're on some kind of version of uh, of you know just flipping items, maybe just flipping houses or something like that. I don't know. But regardless, the Dodgers, on their pace for 100-plus wins, are sitting atop the NL West. And the wild card now, we're not talking about the Braves in the top spot. We're talking about the Mets. They're 10 and a half games up. The Padres have a half-game lead on the Phillies for the second spot. Phillies holding that third spot. And the Brewers now three and a half games back. And that is a look at the National League. We'll continue our trip around the big leagues here on From the Diamond as we look at the American League up next. Grant McCauley and Corey McCartney with you here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game on a Saturday. Thanks for joining us. Much more coming your way right after this.
0: I love baseball. Now back to more Grant McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
1: This is From the Diamond, Grant McCauley. And Corey McCartney with you here on a Saturday afternoon. Saturdays will be the home for From the Diamond as we continue on through the rest of the regular season. Of course, the playoffs. we got all kinds of good stuff up our sleeves for you, though, when we get there. But we will talk about how it gets there in the American League right now as we continue our look around the big leagues. But first, I want to talk about something, watershed moment, if you will, for Major League Baseball, because we have talked so much about labor practices. And, of course, the lockout is why we're having a lot of the weird scheduling quirks we're dealing with this year. And of course we know that's the MLB owners against the MLB players and in particular the players union. Well, the players union is going to get a lot bigger now because minor league baseball has voted to organize and to unionize. And the major league baseball players association is spearheading that MLB to its credit as a first step is going to recognize the minor league baseball players union. Corey, a lot of things still to be ironed out, including that all important first contract to get uh, negotiated. But this continues to be, I think, one of the most important topics that, that folks have get really, I think you feel passionate about it one way or another, mostly, is that the minor league living wage, if you will, has been a huge sticking point in a lot of labor discussions because people have noticed that, hey, you know, you've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of minor league, thousands across all of Major League Baseball that... Don't really get paid a whole bunch, and the promise of work hard and you might make it to the big leagues only goes so far. So there's a lot to unpack, as they say, with this, but I do think it's an important first step and a big moment for Major League Baseball as a whole. That includes the players and the owners to finally rectify something that probably should have been rectified 30, 40, 50 years ago.
2: So this comes on the heels of two big things, right? You had MLB agreeing to pay $185 million to settle a class action suit for for minor leaguers that had been originally filed in 2014. Then you had earlier this summer, uh, Rob Manfred, the commissioner, rejecting the premise that minor leaguers were not paid a livable wage. So now you have these cards that come in and you know the players are able to sign them. Th- this will also allow you know more than 5,000 players who are part of the uh, bar- bargaining unit in total. Uh, the Dominican Summer League uh, is not automatically part of it, but the players' union is trying to bargain over their working conditions as well. So this is not only stretching to those players that you're seeing in places like Rome, Gwinnett, you know, Mississippi, this could also Im- include those guys in the Dominican Summer League. This you know, it's ultimately just about allowing these guys to to, you know, to be able to live while they're playing baseball. It's about, you know, being able to go out and get them housing. I mean, I can't am- remember how many times I've talked to guys in the minor leagues about, you know, the housing situations and them saying, yeah, you know, we're renting this room from this this lady. And it's not as though the, oh, teams, yeah. the, the teams weren't taking the steps to make sure that they were completely in. I mean, think about this in terms of a, of like a, a really elite college program. They know everything that's going on in these commodities that they have each and every day. And then on the baseball side, some of these guys, they have these huge signing bonuses and they weren't all that concerned about what was happening with them after they left the ballpark. I realize they're adults But you still have to be able to take care of these people from point A to point B, and it wasn't happening. And unionizing these players, I think, is just a big step in getting everybody on the same page and making sure that these guys are taken care of uh, for the duration of their time in the minors.
1: And this just speaks to some structure and standards that just simply were not in place. And I know that this is not the the collegiate argument that we're making about, you know, should college players be paid for you know being out there? No, this is not that. These are guys that have turned pro. And for every guy that's gone out there and gotten paid Upwards of twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars, a hundred thousand, a few million dollars. Everybody's not making that, and it is not the same. And I've ridden buses with minor league guys, some of them who made it to the big leagues, and some of whom, you know, were Facebook friends, and I'm really happy for the other mm. things they've done in their life, but their major league dream did not come true. There's a lot of guys out there that I just feel like should be compensated for their time, if you will, of attempting to go out and make that club better. And ultimately, fulfill a dream as well, and I feel like there's been such a chasm between those two things that has needed addressing for quite some time, and it can't simply be, well, it's always been this way, so we can't be changing it now, and I think this is an important step. An exciting story to talk about, but there's also a lot going on with exciting pennant races across baseball, and in the American League, you want to talk about a collapse. Let's talk about the New York Yankees because they are crumbling right now. The Tampa Bay Rays, the Toronto Blue Jays are closing in on what was once a 12-game lead on August the 1st. That has been whittled down to under four games, and what once looked like the safest division lead in baseball, Corey, has become anything but that in September as the Yankees continue to just find new lows in a season that looked like they were maybe World Series bound.
2: Three and a half games is the lowest that their division lead has been since May 3rd. I mean, the Rays just continue to cut into that. They've got them uh, in a weekend series here. I mean, Aaron Judge, obviously, you know, continues this run at the Yankees record. He's at 55 right. home runs. He's on pace for 64 uh, with High Sammy Sosa for the fifth most in a single season. But, man, it, it's just like one thing after another. They they honor Derek Jeter on Friday night. They have CeCe Sabathia, Tino Martinez, Andy Pettit, Posada, Rivera, Torre. They're all in attendance. And then the current Yankees team goes out, and you know, all those parallels that we, that were people were having earlier in the season, to that era of Yankees baseball, and this one, mm-hmm. they show it's not quite there. Aaron Hicks uh, ends no. up dropping this Wander Franco fly ball, gets um, believes he touches the ball in foul territory. You know, all hell breaks loose, and then they end up losing this game, three and a half games. It's just, it's incredible, and it's incredible that the Rays just continue without with the schedule that they've played. They, they have the toughest remaining schedule of any team in postseason position. And they just keep finding a way despite yeah. all the injuries that they've had. Every year is this fascinating story. And, and this year, they're doing it with a team that we thought was dead set, you know, World Series champion, New York Yankees. And now here they are, three and a half game lead in the division on September 10th.
1: Yeah, I was told back in the first week of April that the Dodgers and Yankees had RSVP'd to the World Series and that playing the rest of the season might not be as fruitful from some circles, but that, of course, is not the way it works. You can do all the season projections you want, and that is, of course, all it is because the game's not played on paper. And for the Yankees, they are finding new and and perhaps excruciating ways to lose. And I think it gets to the point where, at least to some extent, you can't even enjoy Aaron Judge's run towards the 61 home run record of Roger Maris set in 1961, which to me is still a very important baseball record, Uh, even though it has been passed numerous times over and everything. But uh, having the American League, You know, single season record, that is something worth going for. And in that franchise, when you're talking about Ruth and Maris and Mantle and, you know, on down the line, you know, to be the single season home run leader for the Yankees. Oh, by the way, to do it in your year marching into free agency. There's a lot of things going on. So maybe to make my very long point as short as I can at this point, you can't even enjoy it as much as you'd like because there's too much other stuff going on, which is a pretty crazy thing to say about that kind of home run chase. Uh, In the AL Central, the Twins are also busy crumbling in that race. Cleveland is now leading the second-place Chicago White Sox, who have passed the Minnesota Twins now in the standings. Believe it or not, the White Sox can move out of third place. They've done it. A big series, though, between the Guardians and Twins is happening this weekend, but this is the race that just continues to be one that's like, does anybody want to walk away with this thing, or is it just going to come down to whoever is just left holding the bag at the end?
2: Yeah, so the Guardians are in first place by half game. They have this weekend series against the second-place Twins. They'll play a five-game series against starting Friday. But while they're playing each other, the White Sox have inexplicably realized it's almost the middle of September. They're now just a game and a half out of first place. They've won 8 of 10. That's when They've won 8 of 10 since Tony La Russa decided he had this undisclosed illness and he couldn't hmm. manage a team any longer. But they've got the A's and the Rockies over their next two series, a single game against the Guardians, then three versus the Tigers. So while the Twins and Guardians are potentially beating each other up, The White Sox can just keep gaining ground. Um, They've got six against Minnesota, three against the Padres in between in the last three series. uh, All of a sudden, we're talking about a team that could win the Central, and they might just end up doing it. I mean, it's... it's I can't believe that we're talking about the White Sox, but it's like the other two teams not being able to distance themselves has allowed the White Sox to go through this whole situation where they finally find themselves when we're getting here into the middle of September.
1: I mean, it's basically whoever's playing the least bad is going to win this division, (laughs) it seems like. And that is not exactly something that makes you feel great about their chances once they do get into the postseason. But this is a postseason spot. This is a divisional spot. Now, you know that the winner of the East and the winner of the West have pretty much got you over a barrel in terms of overall record. But this is still the opportunity to go play October baseball. And I know potentially for the Minnesota Twins, a club that has kept running into the Yankees in the first round year in and year out, maybe they wouldn't have to run into the Yankees. But then again, maybe they do. I don't know. How is this whole thing going to end up playing out? The Yankees are playing so poorly right now, but the Twins – you know, they're really not playing that much better. They've been beset by injuries again. They've got a laundry list of players that have either gone down, ended up on the IL, or day-to-day right now. And as we talked about with the Mets earlier on, this is not the time of year where you want to be talking about everybody on the injured list or just trying to stay off of it.
2: So the Twins are down to 17.6% per fan on their postseason chances. Uh, the Orioles have dwindled to 3.5%. And if you're looking for a team that's probably going to end up having their say in this whole thing, it's going to be Baltimore. They've got six more against the Blue Jays. And with the Rays and Blue Jays facing each other nine times, they could end up taking advantage. So I think, while you know we talk about you know them having fallen off, and you know they're now seven and six against Toronto, they were had a series uh, edge over again before they went into a four-game series earlier this week. Um, But I think you know as much as people are talking about you know Baltimore potentially being out of this. I think the schedule is setting up for them maybe to end up having to say. I, I, this thing is, it looks like it's going down to the absolute wire, and it's just it's just going to be a blast to see how these wild card spots shape up here in the American League.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Baltimore Orioles have an uphill climb to kind of get back into what happened in the East. I mean, we did talk about the Rays and the Blue Jays closing some serious ground on the Yankees, but the Orioles, to their credit, have not gone away. And we'll talk about the wild card in a moment because they are in position for that. They're fourth there and within shouting distance within four games. But, Two interdivisional teams in front of them tells you that they've got a tall order if they want to get past both the Rays and the Blue Jays to get wild card spots because the Seattle Mariners seem to be clutching on to that third and final wildcard spot and show no signs of letting it go. Talking about what's happened in the AL West, the Astros have a nice big lead in that division. They're dealing with their own injury issue with Justin Verlander ending up on the injured list. He's eligible to come off September the 14th. Sounds like you might need a few extra days, though, but... You know, this is the club with the AL's best record and with a nice big divisional lead. They don't have to worry about that as much, but as much as anything or more than that for Houston, it's just about getting healthy, and having Verlander back in the mix when it's time to turn things up for real in October.
2: So Ryan Presley just got back for them. He had His, first, his last save was August 21st against the Braves, but he's now back in the fold. Uh, Verlander, you mentioned, uh, he threw 30 pitches in a bullpen on Friday, but uh, they said he's probably going to need a little bit more time before that September 14th deadline. But you know what you do when you're 12 games up and challenging for a 100-win season is you go hang out with Bad Bunny, which is what Martín Maldonado and Luis Garcia did. They presented him with a custom-made Astros jersey. So life good out in the AL West. Uh, for the Astros, who show no signs of letting up and uh, going to go into the American League uh, postseason here with the number one seed, but um, did you see, by the way, what Mike Trout did? He had a bunch of home runs. Yeah, he has uh, gone deep in five straight games, tying the franchise record for Bobby Bonds in 1977.
1: Bobby Bonds, who played for, by my count, at least nine different big league teams, if not more. I mean, this was a guy yeah, with one, this one know, was down on the list. Crazy talent, but. Uh, ended up playing for teams you're like wait he played for them yeah Yeah, Bobby Bonds is the answer to that trivia question more times than not but yeah for Mike Trout too thinking about his career and all the things he's done and all the home runs he's hit obviously if he's tying this record set by somebody else means it's something he hasn't done in his career which you don't find as many of those things for a guy like Trout and as far as single season accomplishments and you know different streaks of that nature but the home run streak of five in a row something for Angels fans to enjoy in addition to what Shohei Otani has been doing and You know, that guy just continues to just do things that nobody's ever done before, which makes it a better game and a more exciting game. You just wish that the Angels could figure things out so that a couple of these guys, Trout, Otani, and the other 24 that get to go to October with them would get the opportunity to play in the postseason. As far as that wild card is concerned, the Tampa Bay Rays have the top spot by two games. Toronto Blue Jays a half a game ahead of the Seattle Mariners holding on to that third spot, and the Orioles are four games behind them. Seattle, of course, has been one of the hottest teams in baseball. They have been just, what, two, three three wins behind the Braves since August the 1st as far as, I think, best overall record in baseball. This is a club with a two-decade playoff drought that they very much want to end, and it's an exciting and intriguing club. They could make some noise come October.
2: Yeah, seven players hitting above league average in the second half. Juanigo Suarez has been fantastic. Mitch Haniger's rebounded. Jesse Winker's hitting above league average now too. Um, you, we're seeing up close and personal the kind of pitching that they have with Robbie Ray. George Kirby's been fantastic. When we talk about you know young uh, young rookies, obviously they've got Luis Castillo. Uh, I think they're going to be a really tough out. I, I think when they they might have the fewest questions. of of any American League team. And I say that, you know, because if Verlander can't come back and be Verlander, I think the Mariners may have a lot fewer questions than a lot of teams in that American League race.
1: Yeah, no, they certainly could. They've been a very intriguing team here in the second half, and they continue to be a club that is in line for a postseason berth, which is something they haven't been able to talk about too much up in Seattle. That's a look at the American League. Yankees still hanging on in the east. It is, as of now, the Cleveland Guardians in the central. And, of course, the Astros coasting along in the west. When we come back, we'll turn our attention back to the Atlanta Braves, what's going on this weekend in Seattle, and what's coming up for the remainder of this road trip and the homestand after that. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
0: Baseball. Talking Braves and beyond. Baseball. With From the Diamond, Sports Radio 92.9, The Game.
1: Thank you so much for joining us here on a Saturday on From the Diamond. Grant McCauley, Corey McCartney with you. From the Kia Studios on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. We'll be with you on Saturdays for the remainder of the regular season. So we hope you'll, you'll join us. We will keep you updated on all those times, of course. But when you do find us, make sure that you are following along on Twitter. I'm at Grant McCauley. He is at Corey J. McCartney. The show at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end. And if you like what you've heard and simply want more or just want to relive all the fun baseball discussions we're having, you can do that. You can find From the Diamond wherever you get your podcasts or on the Odyssey app. Let's talk about what the Braves have coming up, Corey. They continue this weekend, a battle in Seattle, if you will, against a very good Mariners club, a team that has gotten better as the year has gone on, much like the Atlanta Braves have. But the Braves drew first blood by winning the opener, outslugging the Mariners by a 6-4 score. But we got two more games in Seattle before the West Coast trip where the trip out west continues from the Pacific Northwest down to the Bay Area again, where the San Francisco Giants are waiting to host the Braves for three games Monday through Wednesday. When this road trip is done, the Braves come home for six games against the Phillies and then the Washington Nationals. So, uh, you know, this is going to be a challenging weekend, obviously. We'll see what the Giants series looks like, which version of the San Francisco Giants the Braves are going to run into. They have, of course, played them at Truist Park. But things and times have changed since then. And then you get that meeting with the Phillies waiting. The Braves just continue to have this challenging portion of their schedule as they look to not only just get into first place as they have by half a game, but hold on to first place. That is now the job for the Braves.
2: So they got Marco Gonzalez going for the Mariners on Sunday, another lefty. We know the success that this team has had against left-handed pitchers. They jumped on Robbie Ray on Friday. Um, They obviously had success against two lefties out in Oakland. But on Saturday, uh, you're going to see George Kirby. And maybe he's kind of the answer the Mariners have to a uh, Spencer Strider in terms of of rookie impact but yeah. um, this guy's controls off the charts he's walking 1.1 per 9 which is the best of any rookie starter in his uh, 105 and two-thirds, if they were enough to make him a qualified starter, it would be the second best among all starting pitchers. He throws six different pitchers for his uh, StatCast page. Uh, largely, six. <laughs> largely leans on the four-seamer, cutter, and curveball. But um, he's a blast. So I, People are going to get to see him for the first time. And then when you shift to that Giants series, um, they do. the Braves do manage to avoid Luis Castillo out in Seattle. But they're not dodging Carlos Rodon, who leads the majors in starter war as a 293 ERA, striking out 11.7 per nine. Uh, Obviously, Jock Peterson is going to be the name that everyone's going to be keying in on this series. Mm -hmm. He's leading the Giants in homers, leading them away to run creative plus. And they are are pretty good at home, above 500 at home. The issue is when they've been on the road. They're 12 games below 500. So um, this is going to be a challenging next few days for the Braves, and I'm excited to see Max Freed against George Kirby on Saturday night.
1: Yeah, that should be one of the more exciting pitching matchups that you'll find on this road trip. Of course, Max Freed coming off what was looking to be perhaps a very special outing for him against the Miami Marlins. In the rain, the weather had other ideas, and his five no-hit innings were all the no-hit innings that he was going to get. But I, I felt like it was good to see Max you know, getting those kind of numbers again, getting those kind of results again, if you will. Because there have been a couple of times here in the second half where not that, not that he's you know, slowing down necessarily, but he's had to grind a little bit through a couple of outings. I know one where Travis Darnot said, hey, we're out in the bullpen. And I was thinking, oh, no, I'm a little bit worried. But then Max went out there and threw one of his best games of the year. So that can still happen. That's still on the board for Max Fried. I mean, we're talking about a guy who's, what, 13-5 and this year with a sub-250 ERA. You know, he's going to be looking for, and I'm sure getting some Cy Young consideration in the National League and that just is who Max Freed is. That's why he's the Braves' number one starter, and he has a chance on Saturday to help Atlanta take a series from another playoff hopeful team in the Seattle Mariners. Then Jake Odorizzi should be back on Sunday. He has been skipped one time through the rotation. Some fatigue, I guess, is what they were trying to manage with him as well. You know, he came over, some lackluster results, that first handful of starts with the Braves. Then in the midst of a rain delay against the Mets after getting bombed in the first couple of innings, he was able to figure something out, and he was able to carry it over to a great start against the Pirates. A a really good start against the St. Louis Cardinals, so things got a little sideways in the sixth inning on him. But, you know, overall, I mean, as far as fifth starters are concerned, that's really all you're asking him to do is throw you, you hope, a quality start, give your team a chance to win. And as you mentioned, with Marco Gonzalez on the mound, that will be, what, the fourth time in the first five games of this road trip the Braves will face a left-handed starter, and Atlanta has the best OPS of any National League team against lefties and second-best in all of baseball. I say all of that to say lefties and the Braves is a pretty good mix for Atlanta.
2: Yeah, without question. I mean, they, they've just been an absolute force when it comes to facing left-handed pitchers all season long. I mean, they have the second-best weighted run created plus, uh, second-best OPS overall, and weighted on base average, the third-best average. Um, They're they're poised to do more damage against Marco Gonzalez. And the thing with Odorizzi is he's been limiting hard contact with rates in the low 20s in each of his last three starts. That was not there early on. And most importantly, as you mentioned, it's his role given things. Let this team, this offense, have a chance to win, and I think that's the big piece with a Jake Rizzi start. Um, if he's able to do that, I mean, I think we have you know fewer questions down the stretch of you know where things slot in. How do you use a Soroka? Where does Bryce Elder fit into the yeah. equation? If Odorizzi just goes out there and, and can be manageable in what he does, I mean, this team's going to answer a lot of questions at number five in the
1: rotation. And if you had to line up two brave starters for the final two games in Seattle, you'd want to have Max Freed, I think, going against George Kirby, given the success of the Seattle rookie and. If Jay Goderizzi is going to go out and hopefully give you a quality start, why not have the Braves offense going up against another lefty starter? I think a lot of good things are in the on the board there for the Braves, but you got to go out, and you got to win those games. It's going to be a tough one. You did talk about Kirby and Julio Rodriguez, the two rookie standouts for the Mariners, among others, and that of course is the tag team that could go up against Michael Harris the second and Spencer Strider, because the Braves have gotten, as you mentioned, a lot of production out of those two rookies. I'd be fascinated to see. Who's the trios for Seattle? If they, if you put Vaughn Grissom into the mix, who's going to go up against him for the Mariners? Because it's not just two rookies for them. They've called on you. Look at their roster up and down. Maybe it's Cal Raleigh. I don't know. Maybe that's the trios guy. For I think them because... I
2: think it's Andres Munoz. He's got a one five four FanGraph War. He's fanning 1398 nine eight per inning over his fifty six out of the bullpen. So throw me Munoz as the young guy in that trios. All right,
1: I'll take the slugging catcher and throw him in there. Maybe we have somebody on the outside of the cage. I don't know, but it's it's exciting and refreshing to see teams. Teams that are having their success built on young players coming up and really stepping up and making some big time contributions. And the Braves can thank I think Michael Harris and Spencer Strider for being two of the big reasons why their season really turned around once June the first rolled around. Uh, as far as the starters in the or excuse me in the San Francisco series, I believe we have Kyle Wright, Spencer Strider, and Charlie Morton would be lined up to go there, barring any kind of changes from the Braves. Kyle Wright really needs a bounce back. I'm not going to tell you that his whole season was derailed because he was charged with eight earned runs against the Oakland Athletics. Some of that damage was done after he was already out of the game, but clearly he wasn't sharp. He didn't have it. It was a bad game, but hey, the Braves won that game. You flush it, you move on to the next one, and I think Kyle Wright's done a good job of that. It's just going to be right now, I think, for him and particularly for Charlie Morton, as we've already talked about earlier in the show, how does your playoff rotation look? You've got Max Freed. Then what order do the other arms go who would be the odd man out in a three-game series? Maybe even in a five-game series. At this point, it's some really fascinating decisions. And keeping in mind Corey too, with those first couple of uh, series, you don't have all the off days that you would have normally had. Major League Baseball has condensed that schedule through the playoffs to keep the World Series from ending up in Thanksgiving.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Uh, and when it comes to Wright, you know, the, the curveball has been the biggest reason for his turnaround. Um, he you know, told me he went back to his Vanderbilt tape and, and went back to that point when he was a fastball, curveball guy. He's gotten back to that uh, this year. He's throwing at 34.3%, which is the highest of any point in his career. But the A's did get to him for the second highest average against the pitch on the season. Uh, they had his fourth home run on the curveball on that. He exited after four innings, eight runs, two homers. I mean, hit, having your worst outing of the season, when you think about a converse, these conversations that are starting to build about who's getting squeezed out of that postseason rotation, at least through a, you know, best-of-three wild-card round if the Braves had to play it or the LDS. It's not the strongest of statements, but he's obviously got an opportunity <laughs> right. uh, to go out and rectify things well before that decision has to be
1: made. Yeah, and that, I think, is what you want. You want the opportunity, right, to be able to turn things around, and he's clearly gotten that. And Kyle Wright has shown the Braves so much this year, and that Oakland start notwithstanding, I still feel like he has been the Braves' most consistent pitcher start-to-start start all year long. I mean, there's not much to stop Spencer Strider from being that either, except for the fact that he spent the first month and a half, at least in the bullpen. But uh, from opening day on, if you made the starting rotation, at, you know, once spring training camp broke, Kyle Wright, I think, has kind of been the guy. Max Fried is the one that is going to lead this group and has put up the biggest numbers in terms of, yeah, well, anybody not named Spencer Strider again. I, I can't get away from this guy. I think there, that might be a message somewhere for somebody, that Spencer Strider is awfully good at baseball and could win the National League Rookie of the Year award and – could be a huge part of the Braves' postseason rotation. And if you were looking for stories back in spring training that you thought were going to be a reality by the time you get into September, could anybody have called Spencer Strider's level of success? Because it has been absolutely breathtaking to watch what this kid has been doing every fifth day.
2: Yeah, and think about last year. I mean, obviously, you know, the Braves only got a small taste of what he was capable of last year, but you didn't see that swing and miss stuff out of him last year. It looked like, okay, you know, this is – You know, maybe we're getting to that point where the waves of pitching are not that they're you know drying up, but maybe some maybe there is a point to the fact that you know you're getting a little bit deeper down into the rung of of the kind of prospects the Braves have, and it's just not going to be these guys that come up and are just you know otherworldly, and then this season happens, and I mean it's just been I mean it's just been unbelievable, and you know. it's been a long time since the Braves have had, you know, a couple rookies that have, you know, been this fascinating this quickly. I mean, it, Craig Kimbrell and Freddie Freeman had that one-two mm-hmm. finish, but even then they didn't have, you know, the duration of the – they weren't that dominant together. Freeman was good, but he was, a, you know – do, absolute domination from Kimbrell in that in that Rookie of the Year voting. I don't think it's going to be like that. This We're going to have a, a long time to sort this thing out, but I don't think it's going to be an absolute run, runaway, one shape or form in the, uh, who ends up with that award and certainly yeah. Strider's ability to pitch the way he has is making this a really fascinating conversation.
1: You know, a lot of people have talked about the 2005 Braves team, that baby Braves club that brought up so many players from the minors that won the 14th consecutive division title when nobody thought that the Braves were going to be able to do it. It seemed like, you know, the They just run out of either the funds or just didn't have the right kind of roster. And then you had Jeff Francoeur and Brian McCann and a host of other players that came up from the minor leagues. But if you do look at that 2005 club, Jeff Francoeur came up a lot later in the season than did Michael Harris, number one. So Harris has had a longer time to make a bigger impact of any of the Braves' rookies position player-wise. Vaughn Grissom rolling around in August has also been quite a revelation for the Braves on top of what Spencer Strider has done. There may have been more rookies in terms of quantity that came up in 2005 and helped the Braves win that division. I know Brian McCann was in that group. Uh, I know that there were some starting pitchers that came up and made some contributions there, relievers that also kind of filled the gaps, and uh, Ryan Langerhans, Pete Orr. I mean, these are the kind of names that we're also looking at here. But in terms of quality and and the guys that we're talking about rookie-wise, I don't know that there has been a better Braves rookie class in 2022.
2: There there has not been. So there were 18 rookies that made up that baby Braves class. They had accumulated an 8.4 fangraph war. Spencer Strider and Michael Harris II are doing that by themselves. Yeah. That shows you how good this group has been. Um, they've already surpassed that group, left them uh, them way in their rearview mirror. This is the most impactful group of rookies that the Braves have ever had in franchise history.
1: As far as what the Braves have ahead of them right now, once this road trip is done, it's six games, three each, against the Phillies and the Washington Nationals. Then they're going to hit the road immediately for a four-game set against the Philadelphia Phillies, followed up by a chaser of three more games against the Washington Nationals, and then that Mets series from September the 30th through, what, October the 2nd, is looming right after that. So, Corey, it's all coming down to this, and it is all coming pretty quickly at this point. The Braves have got to handle their business in advance of that Mets series, but this has certainly felt like an inevitability in some ways with the Braves being as hot as they are, that they would be able to catch up and pass the Mets, and it has happened as of Friday. Now the job, as I've said many, many times, like the broken record that I can be, Is you got to stay there? You got to hold on to it.
2: I did not think they were going to get to this point this quickly. I thought it was going to come down to the only chance they would get out of the three games. Yeah, to that three games. I thought that was everything was going to ride. It still may end up riding on that, but that they've done it this quickly, and that the the Mets are in the situation they are against teams they should be beating. Man, that that September thirtieth series could be an absolute blast, and I mean, it could be. This is the best race in baseball, without question. The, the National, the American League Central, is only to that point because nobody wants to come up and and take the ring. Uh, this is just going to be a lot of fun to watch these last couple of weeks. It
1: really is. I will say this: it'll be an absolute blast if you're on the right side of the final scores in that. Oh, it could true. be absolutely debilitating for a club if you if you are unable to show up in that series in a big time way, taking two out of three only gives you one game in the standings. A sweep obviously means three, and, you know, the inverse is true, and it could do a lot of flipping around and transposing of those records. But even so, you've still got three games against a couple of losing clubs on the other side as the Mets and the Nationals will tangle and the Braves and the Marlins will. So even that three-game series, if you really don't see a big swing in the standings, Hold on to your hats because you still got to go out and handle business against another club, and you cannot afford a letdown.
2: But you're still going to the
1: postseason regardless.
2: Yes, I mean, you, you are. Cannot yes, you cannot say that against, uh, as you can say that in the American League no, Central, uh, that's no. not happening. No, no, no. One of these these two teams are both going to the postseason. It's just a matter of how long is it going to take you before you end up probably have to face the Dodgers.
1: Yeah, and the Dodgers are of course the the real Thanos, the real inevitability of the postseason. The Braves were able to figure out a way to get past them last year, and of course win the World Series, win it all. Now they seem like they have, I feel like, in a lot of ways, a better club, a more well-rounded club than they did because they had to fill a lot of holes at the trade deadline last year. Alex Anthopoulos did not have to go out and remake his outfield this time around. He made some astute trades to make this club a little bit better. But Atlanta, if it gets healthy with Ozzy Albies, Mike Soroka and the likes coming back in addition to the reinforcements that have already come in and the rookies that have come up and made a big impact in some of the guys having career years, like Austin Riley and Dansby Swanson, who surprisingly we haven't even talked about much on the show it could be quite a special season for this year's Atlanta Braves. That's going to bring us to the end of this edition of From the Diamond. We appreciate you so much for joining us here on a Saturday afternoon. Hope you have a great rest of your weekend for Corey McCartney and for Dom Shrosky. Appreciate all your help keeping us on the rails, and we look forward to talking to you next Saturday right here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.